0: We just got back from uh, uh, quite a strenuous trip to England and Ireland, and uh, somewhere along the way I caught a cold, so however many cylinders I've got left, I haven't been functioning on all of them. So, Lord Jesus, please just help. You know, we do need the grace of God, don't we? And we're we're reminded of that actually last night. Uh, I just feel that, um, this has got nothing to do with the message, but You know, Jimmy preached for about a half an hour last night and said, well, I haven't begun yet, so I can do a minute or two anyway. (laughs) But I just want to leave you with this thought off the top of my head, that we all understand that justification, that salvation, is a gift of grace. None of us can earn our own salvation. We know that. But why is it in the Christian world that we think that sanctification is something that we have to earn? Uh, Sanctification, which is the work of the Holy Spirit that every day draws us closer to Christ and makes us look more like Him, hopefully. Um, that is a gift of God. Did you ever think, you know, we all know that the gifts of the Spirit are supernatural. You can't manufacture uh, a prophecy or a word of knowledge or, well, I've known some people that have tried to, but anyway, <laughs> won't <they? laughs> uh But you can't. I mean, it's God. We understand that. Why do we think that the fruit of the Spirit is something we have to manufacture? So the fruit of the Spirit is just as much a gift of God, a supernatural gift of God, because it's the fruit. This is deep now. Get this. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Spirit, right? It's not the fruit of Andrew or David. or It's the fruit of the Spirit. So every day, I need the grace of God to be more like Jesus, And uh, where we lose sight of that, we fall back into legalism. And legalism is just a terrible, dead-end street. And so can I encourage you just to live in the grace of God in these days. And if you fall flat in your face, join the club. Now I want to uh, ask the question, and hopefully give an answer to it tonight, why was the apostolic church so successful? So, let's look at this remarkable passage in Acts chapter five, and verses twelve to fifteen. Which I never trust the, you know, people that it's actually going to come up on. See, it hasn't. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> then I always forget that it's <coughs> it always comes up up there where the preacher can see it, along with the. Andrew, what does that clock mean that's ticking down? I don't know. <laughs> Nothing. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick Into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that, as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and the and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Now, how did they get there? So, to understand how they got there, we have to go back to where I think the story starts, which is in Luke chapter 3 and verse 21, where it says this, "'Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, "'You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased.'" So when I ask the question, what is the significance of the descending of the Spirit on Jesus? The voice from heaven declared that Jesus was the Son of God. But let me let you in on a secret. The information was not for Jesus' benefit. He knew that. Uh, It's hard to imagine that Jesus required a revelation of the Holy Spirit concerning his identity. He was the everlasting second person of the Trinity after all. So the descending of the Spirit at the Jordan and the voice that accompanies it is to be understood as the... declaration of the empowering of the Messiah, which enables him to begin his ministry of baptism with fire and the Spirit, and that initiates the breaking in of the kingdom of God into human history. That's very important. And so Jesus goes straight from his baptiz- baptism into the wilderness. And there, in the wilderness, he deals in the first of many blows to Satan's grasp on the world. Some jokers in the second row here were asking me what uh, the significance, how could God tempt Jesus by sending him into the desert when we're supposed to pray, lead us not into temptation. When the ushers take them out and discipline them in the foyer, please. (laughs) But Jesus goes into the wilderness to confront the devil, and here's the answer. Here's the reason why God sends him into that place. Now, three times, the devil tempts him, right? Three times, Jesus quotes the book of Deuteronomy to refute the devil. Why is that? Well, uh, Jesus refuses the temptation of Satan to be fed. Temptation number one. What had happened to Israel? God had sent the manna. Israel had despised the manna and asked for the food of Egypt. Israel had failed the test. Jesus passed it. Next up, Jesus refuses the devil's demand that he test God by throwing himself down from the temple. How about Israel? Israel had tested God at the waters of Meribah and Massah. That's where Moses himself came under judgment. Israel had failed. Jesus succeeds. And thirdly, Jesus refuses the devil's offer of the kingdoms of the world by vowing to serve God and him only. Whereas Israel had worshipped the golden calf. Three times, Jesus quotes... The commands of God to Israel. Each of those three commands, Israel had violated, and each of those three commands, Jesus obeyed. God was making a point. That's why God sent Jesus into the desert to confront the enemy. Israel had failed in their 40 years in the wilderness, But in 40 days, Jesus succeeded. 40 was the number of failure. Jesus turned it into the number of victory. The kingdom that God had commissioned Israel to establish, to reach the nations of the world, had come to nothing. Now, see, God had commissioned Adam in the garden and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. And to extend the boundaries of the garden to the ends of the earth. That was the effect of God's. That was the the point of the command to be fruitful and multiply. And they failed through disobedience. Then after the flood, God gives the same commission to Noah. And we know Noah failed because a few chapters later, it all ends in the Tower of Babel and the judgment of God. Then God gives Israel the same commission to be a light to the nations, Isaiah 49 and 6. Israel fails. Every time God is giving a commission to His people, to His representatives to push back the boundaries of the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth. Each time they fail. But Jesus is going to succeed. That's why Matthew 24 and 14 says, and I know... There's all sorts of lunatics out there that have signs of the supposed return of the Lord. But there is one indicator that God gives, which is in Matthew 24 and 14, that the gospel of the kingdom will come to every ethnos. That means every people group. There's Wycliffe Bible Translators tells us there's approximately 6,000 of them. Uh, the half or more of whom have not yet received the word of God. Jesus will take the gospel of the kingdom to every ethnos, to every people group before he'll return. The gospel of the kingdom will come to every nation, and then he'll return. Why is that? It's because Jesus will succeed where Adam failed. Jesus will succeed where Noah failed. Jesus will succeed where Israel failed. Through the church and the power of the kingdom of God, the boundaries of the kingdom will be stretched forth to the ends of the earth. And the culmination of all of this is in the last two chapters of the Bible. Where the garden temple of Eden will be restored. The first two chapters of the Bible and the last two chapters are bookends. Everything's there. The rivers are there, the river is there, the um, precious stones are there, the tree of life is there. It's all there. The only thing that isn't there in the new Jerusalem is the presence of the serpent. So Jesus is taking us on this amazing journey. And it all begins at his baptism in Luke chapter 3, because that's when Jesus begins to turn all the failure of previous history into success. And that's when the kingdom of God comes in. And that's when he triumphs over the enemy. The rest of it is cleanup operation. It's like D-Day. The battle was won at D-Day. And yet, many lives were lost between D-Day and the eventual end of the Second World War. But D-Day was Calvary and the resurrection. And now we live in the assurance of his victory, even though there's cleanup operations to be done. Well, that should be encouraging. I hope somebody's encouraged tonight. Okay. Now, but it's when the Holy Spirit came upon him. That the kingdom of God was initiated on earth. And so this theme of the interrelationship of the Holy Spirit and the kingdom of God runs like a golden thread through all four gospels and the book of Acts. But if it's by the spirit of God, Jesus said that I cast out demons, if it's by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So, the interrelationship of the Holy Spirit and the kingdom, the two realities are intertwined. They're inextricable. And that's why the role of the Holy Spirit, who is God on earth, I mean, if Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, and I know that's human language, it isn't as if Jesus and the Father have two great chairs sitting somewhere. And they're looking at all the action going on. But there is something real expressed in the fact that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. But the Holy Spirit has been sent out into this world. If you marginalize the Holy Spirit, you have marginalized God. I don't, I don't understand why people have a problem with welcoming the Holy Spirit into a church service. Uh, I don't understand why people have a problem with why you can't pray to the Holy Spirit. You can't glorify the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, for Pete's sake, is God. He is God. And the devil loves to get the body of Christ spending more time arguing over the work of the Holy Spirit than welcoming the Holy Spirit. So, you know, we need to... You, you say, well, you know, there can be a bit of disorder when the Holy Spirit shows up. Well, there was disorder in the temple that day when Jesus showed up and overturned everything. Where there's no oxen in the stall, there's no mess. You can have the order of the cemetery if you want, but I'd rather have the order of the nursery where there's new life and dirty diapers and whatnot. <laughs> I remember hearing, the only time in my life I heard John, I'm getting dangerously off topic, I have to be really careful here. <laughs> my wife is sitting with the I can feel the eagle eye upon me. That's, that's why I'm looking over here. Uh, <laughs> but the only time I had the privilege of hearing John Wimber speak is the founder of the Vineyard Movement, an amazing man. Um, and he expounded on that text at the end of 1 Corinthians 14. It's amazing how you know, a blues musician, which is what he was, can't get something out of the scripture that, you know, somebody that's spent years studying theology misses somehow. But, uh, and he said, you know where that verse where it says, let everything be done decently and in order. <coughs> Excuse me. And, uh, and, and John Wimber said, you know, it's how you read the verse. And I thought, well, I wonder what he's going to say. I mean, the verse is pretty clear. But, you know, let everything be done decently in order. And he said, this is how we read the verse in church generally and he preached this by the way in the middle of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the Toronto airport church where we were heavily involved at that time and he came into the midst of it and, so this is how, and all sorts of things were happening but he, he, he said this is how we preach this is how we read the verse let, let, every, let everything be done decently and in order <laughs> he said well let me suggest to you that's not how Paul wrote it Paul wrote it this way let everything be done decently in an order. It's different, isn't it? So I say, let everything be done. And Andrew and the elders will clean up the mess later. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So the interrelationship of the Holy Spirit and the kingdom of God runs like a golden thread throughout the Gospels and Acts. But the story didn't pan out the way the disciples expected because they thought... Jesus would seize power and drive the Romans out. And toward the end of his ministry, Jesus tells a story to them. Uh, he, says that, he tells a story about a nobleman who goes away to another country to receive his kingdom and then later returns to reign. So Jesus first has to go away in order to return with fuller kingdom authority. And so the gospel accounts demonstrate the breaking in of the kingdom through the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon Jesus. But they also point to an even greater fulfillment. How can there be an even greater fulfillment? That's amazing. But the gospels point to that even greater fulfillment. Jesus says, it's going to be even better if I go away and then return. And of course, we know that he returns at Pentecost in the empowering of the Holy Spirit. So we shouldn't be surprised that in that 40-day period, oh, that's interesting, 40 days turns up again. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus teaches the disciples for 40 days between the resurrection and Pentecost. And it says in Acts chapter 1 and 3, he presented them himself alive to them. Now, what was he talking about? Appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. That's what he was talking about. And he instructed them to stay in Jerusalem. To wait for the promise of the Father. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So an even greater fulfillment than had taken place in Jesus' earthly ministry was about to happen. The reason it's greater is because what is about to happen is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, not just upon Jesus, as happened back at the Jordan where he was baptized, where, as I said, the story begins, but the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is going to come upon all God's people. All God's people. The Jewish people had believed that the Holy Spirit had left Israel after the death of the last prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Owing to the sin of the people. For 400 years, the Jews believed the Holy Spirit was absent. And that when He returned, there would be two things significant. The return of the Holy Spirit would mark the coming of the Messiah. Number one. Number two, the Holy Spirit would come with fire and light. That's what they believed. And that's why so many thousands got saved on the day of Pentecost. They didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah even when He was raising the dead in front of them in the streets of Jerusalem. But when the Holy Spirit was visibly restored in fire and light and poured out, they believed He was the Messiah. And so we are the inheritors of this incredible legacy. We are still the people upon whom God is pouring out His Spirit. That means we are the, a people of the kingdom. Yeah. The kingdom of God is manifest <coughs> Excuse me, amongst us. What is the kingdom of God? It's not a locality like the state of Indiana or the city of Indianapolis. The kingdom of God is the rule of God. It's the reign of God. It's the dynamic power of God that comes through you and me and all of us. Because we're all people of the kingdom. We're not dependent upon the preacher or some visiting personality. All of us have the power of the kingdom. Back under the old covenant, there was a cubicle up at the front. And only one man, once a year, could enter it. That was where the presence of God was. On the day of Pentecost, that whole thing is broken open. And something of the temple of God that we see manifest in Revelation 4 and 5 and 7 and 14 is poured out. It falls out of heaven on the city of Jerusalem. The temple of God. And the Holy Spirit, what was confined to that cubicle that only one man once a year could enter, now is poured out upon everyone to the point where you are, if you know Jesus in this room tonight, you are a one-man or one-woman mobile tabernacle of the Holy Ghost. So you are like a portable Holy of Holies. Wherever you go... You are a holy of holies into your college, your neighborhood, your place of employment. You are carrying the presence of Almighty God with you. And you have authority from God to uh, extend the boundaries of His kingdom wherever you are. So... Anyway, back to the book of Acts. The kingdom of God is operating now, not just in Jesus, right, but in all of his followers. So there's this crippled beggar at the gate of the temple. And when Peter comes up, he walks. Uh, And it says, Luke records, that great, great grace was upon the whole body of believers. In Acts 4, when the church prayed, the building shook. There must have been. You think about it. There had to have been miracles happening all over town. And so we get to the text that I read out at the beginning. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done, regularly, among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all gathered together in Solomon's portico. Now this Solomon's portico, as archaeology has revealed, it's a place just outside the temple it was a very short distance actually from the place where that crippled man had been healed my theory is that it was such a hubbub when the crippled man was healed that they all went to the nearest place where there was an open area where they could gather which was solomon's portico and <coughs> excuse me the apostles began to preach and this just turned into a continuous revival meeting Every day they were in Solomon's portico and they were preaching. Peter here was preaching the miracle working power of God to all the crowds of people. And they were gathering daily, the apostles, to preach the kingdom and heal the sick. And signs of wonders were being done. It was was such a... uh, They were operating in such a degree of power that there were people that were scared even to go near the place. But it wasn't just the healings. The healings had an important, more, more important goal, which is stated in the text that I read out in verse 14 of Acts 5, which is more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. That's the goal. If we want revival and if we want mass conversions, we need miracles. We need miracles. We have to enter into and access the power of the kingdom of God. And I'll say something more about that before I finish. And I will finish, I promise. (laughs) So if Jesus himself was empowered, now think about it. If Jesus himself was empowered by the descending of the Spirit, how much more are we? We're not fully God as Jesus was, but how much more are we who are only very imperfect men and women, how much more do we need that same empowering? We need the empowering of the Spirit. Fifty years ago, I hate to think. I can't believe it was 50 years ago. I'm only 39. But anyway, 50 years ago, a power encounter with the Holy Spirit radically changed my life. And I haven't got time to tell the testimony, but I was, I was like a Pharisee. I mean, I was fighting against the work of the Holy Spirit. I didn't believe in the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit arrested me. And I found myself, after someone prayed for me, I found myself on the floor, unable to move, with the other guy laughing at me. <laughs> I found myself crawling down four flights of stairs. It was a, a lot of humbling that God had to do. And across several rooms, and, he, he, and I pulled myself up on a, a pile of old wooden stacking chairs, And my friend put my coat on me because it was in the middle of February. And he pushed me out into the street and said, call me tomorrow and tell me what's happened. And I got down the road about a block. And the power of God was on me. And all my doctrine was I didn't believe in speaking in tongues. So I had a problem. (laughs) I did not know what was happening to me. I had no frame of reference for what was happening to me. But I got to the first road. And I said, well, God... In spite of all my prejudices, and all my stupidities, and all my arrogance, and all my total unbelief. This is do or die. And I opened my mouth and started to speak. And by the time I got to the other side of the road, I was speaking in a total different language that I never learned. And I walked around the inner city of Toronto until 3 o'clock in the morning, totally drunk in the spirit. Changed my life. And then... I started to know things that were going to happen before they happened. And every time something happened like that, I wound up laying hands on somebody else and the same thing happened to them. And after four times in two weeks, like Samuel, you know, the boy Samuel, it took me a while to figure it out, but I realized this was the voice of God. God had taken me like C.S. Lewis and the Narnia books through the wardrobe into another country. And I've never come out. I mean, that doesn't mean I'm perfectly sanctified. My wife will give lengthy testimony. (laughs) That has not yet taken place. Uh, But it changed my life. It, It absolutely changed my life. We can hear the voice of God. Revelation 19 and 10 says the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And we all testify to Jesus, right? We're all witnesses to Jesus. If you're a witness to Jesus, you have the spirit of prophecy. Right, that's right. We're a prophetic people. All of us are, are prophets in that sense. What is a prophet? A prophet's a person who hears from God. You can all hear from God. Yeah. You, the problem is we just don't listen. We just don't listen. Why don't you listen? For a change. Take a risk. And go and tell someone something you feel God's laid on your heart for them. You know the 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 uh, people say, "Well, how do you you know perfect the gift of prophecy?" I say, "Well, just practice, trial and error." Sounds very unspiritual, doesn't it? But everything we do is trial and error. We never get it perfectly. That's why God provides. a multitude of or a plurality of prophets in 1 Corinthians 14 because none of us gets the whole picture you know but we all get part of it and the sad part of it is that we hear from God and we don't think it's God and we allow the enemy to persuade us it's not God we sit there and say nothing why don't you just take a chance my motto is fire and worry about the ready aim later if you analyze you'll never do anything well, that was all that was all free for nothing. Doesn't count in my sixteen minutes and one second. But you know, we sat up here this morning and I and I noticed the time ticking down. And then it went into the red, into the minus. And we just kept going. <laughs> now that was my testimony about a power encounter with the Holy Spirit. And uh, please don't get hung up in speaking in tongues, although I recommend it. But um, I, I I do say, I do firmly believe that God wants all of us to have a power encounter with the Holy Spirit. I really do believe that. Whatever God does in you as a result of it, you know, there's no doubt in my mind, 1 Corinthians 12 says that everybody's supposed to operate in at least one, if not more, gifts of the Spirit. Whatever they are. So let's just have some more of that. Yeah. And, but here's the point. Uh, that encounter with the Holy Spirit wouldn't have done me a lot of good if I hadn't met the Holy Spirit since. Yeah. Right? And that's why in Ephesians 5.18... Paul says, be filled with the Spirit, and it's in the Greek, present continuous tense. Remember this morning, we were talking about asking, seeking, and knocking. If you were here, if you weren't, you missed it. So anyway, uh, it's continuous activity. So when he says, be filled with the Spirit, there in Ephesians, he doesn't mean once. He means over and over and over and over and over again. Moses need to be filled with the Spirit anew every day. So, you know, if you missed out yesterday, there's still tomorrow. Yeah. Be filled with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit brings the kingdom of God to town. That's the point of what I'm trying to say in this message. <laughs> now, thank you. I think I am making the point, I hope. Now, two things happen when the kingdom of God arrives in town. The first is the presence of the supernatural. Our best human efforts operate only in the realm of the possible. The kingdom of God operates in the realm of the impossible. If all you're doing is in the possible, you're not touching what you should be touching in God. When all church does is what's humanly possible, it's not operating the way God designed it to. There was a famous Chinese apostolic leader back in the 1980s, I think, who was released from prison when um, things started to ease off. Of course, now they're bad again there. uh, And he was allowed out of the country, and he took a month touring the United States. I'm not picking on you dear folk, but it was the United States that he toured. And he went around all the great ministries of the day. And at the end of the month, and I know this because a man called Larry Burkett, who wrote some amazing books on money, uh, had lunch with him, at the very end of his stay. And he said to him. Brother. Uh, you spent a month going around all these. Big churches and so on. And ministries. Um, what's your assessment? And the, the man. Uh, turned to him and said. Well he said. It's amazing how much you've been able to do. Without God. Ouch. You know. When church goes corporate. Don't let that happen ever here. We need the kingdom. We don't need the corporate. That's what society has got already. When the church does what is humanly possible, it's not operating the way God designed it to. God wants to break us out of the realm of the possible and into the realm of the impossible, and for that we need the power of the kingdom. And the power of the kingdom will attract people. Look, Pete. Pete, you know, who previously only ever opened his mouth to change feet, uh, is headed over to Starbucks for his, you know, caramel triple macchiato or whatever it was he ordered. And uh, being a man of routine and habit like I am, he probably went to the same coffee shop every day, ordered the same thing. And so people knew where he was going. What did they do? And he was heading from the coffee shop. That's my speculation, but anyway... <clears throat> He was heading from the coffee shop to Solomon's portico. Same route every morning. They laid the sick out into the streets. And as the shadow of his coffee cup passed over them, they got healed. It's extraordinary. And it says they all got healed. Not just some. And they started coming not just from Jerusalem, but from all the places around as the word spread. And many, many people became Christians. That's the power of the kingdom. The Apostle Paul stated that the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. Now we live in a supposedly sophisticated Western culture. But we've been fed a steady diet for 300 or more years. That the only reality is what we can access with our five senses. What we can see and taste and smell and touch and so on. That's what we've been taught for over 300 years in our society. It's actually irrational. When you look and listen to some of these atheist scientists and philosophers, not that all philosophers and scientists are atheists, but a number are, and you listen to them expound all of their sophisticated theories of the cosmos none of them can be able none of them has been able to explain how the random bunches of atoms that they admit is all they themselves are how this random bunch of atoms can so easily grasp the mysteries of a universe which cannot be explained as anything other than the creation of a personal supernatural god that's the irrationality of much of the modern philosophical and scientific worldview that is so prevalent in our culture. We're fools. So what is Christianity? Christianity is the invasion of this messed up, fallen, troubled world by the sovereign exercise of the same divine power that created it in the first place. And so when we apply this to healing, the truth becomes easily understandable. If God made us, he can heal us. Now, God can do it through the wisdom of doctors, which comes from him equally. He can do it that way. But God is also capable of bypassing that process or of bringing healing when the best doctors in the world are not able to. The church grows weak. When it surrenders the very thing that the hostile atheistic world that we live in in the West, the very thing that that world doesn't have is the power of the kingdom. Why is it that the church surrenders the power of the kingdom? And then finds itself impotent to reach the culture in which it lives. We're, We're so sophisticated But if you want to know spiritual power, go to Nigeria, go to India, go to some of these other places, many of these other places. You'll find power. You'll find demonic power. But you'll find the power of God. A friend of mine, uh, his name is Gary Hayes, uh, told me a story not too long ago. Uh, And back at the beginning of their marriage, he and his wife, Sheila, have been unable to have children. In fact, the doctors had told them medical conditions made it absolutely impossible for his wife to conceive. But they refused to accept it because they had a word from God and they felt that God had given them the promise of a son. In fact, they felt so strongly that they had decorated a room, they bought baby furniture, and they put his name, Joshua, on a plaque on the door. And they believed that God had promised them he would be a prophetic worship leader. So, time went by. Some years actually went by. And during a lot of those seasons, they hung on just sometimes by the skin of their teeth. There were lots of tears. There were lots of marital tension. There was lots of times of frustration with God. If you're angry with God, just tell him, David did. In the Bible, you know. I mean, God knows your heart anyway. So just lay it out. But anyway, after a very long period of time, some years, Sheila felt ill. And in that moment, they both knew this was it. So Gary went out and he bought a pregnancy test. And it was negative. And so then... I don't know, the next day or whatever. He bought another pregnancy test and it was negative. And on the third day, he bought another pregnancy test and it was negative. And on the fourth day, he went and bought another pregnancy test and it was negative. And on the fifth day, he went and bought another pregnancy test and it was positive. And nine months later, Joshua was born. And he's now 28 or 29 years old, and he's a powerful prophetic worship leader. (laughs) You know, when Gary and Sheila went to their doctor, the doctor said to Sheila, You've been with another man. That's what he said. And Elena and I fell into this practice of praying for uh, uh, barren couples, uh, and over the years, we've lost count of the number of miracles. We had a, a neonatal intensive care nurse. Uh, uh, oddly enough, her name was Sarah Best, so there's two Sarah Best's in the world at least. And, uh, there's only one. And there's only one. <laughs> well, I've got news there actually are two. But the other one, she, she had been told, and she was a neonatal nurse at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, which is the top children's hospital in the country, and she, she knew her condition. She had, uh, I've forgotten what she had. Elaine will tell you because she's a nurse. But anyway, she had uh, endometriosis and polycystic ovaries. There you go. Uh, And the combination of the whole thing, it was impossible. And eventually she went from one doctor and one specialist and one fertility clinic to another and whatnot. And eventually, after all of this, they said, well, we can bore a hole in your... Uterus and it's like a chemotherapy, and ovaries. I know, I know. well you come up and tell the story? <laughs> that that doesn't count in my three minutes and fifty-three seconds. <laughs> and uh, you know the problem is that my problem is that there's a there's a, you know a trap door here, and Andrew presses a buzzer and disappeared. Uh, anyway. But we prayed with them, and they prayed, and we trusted God. And they came to the point where they they just said, we're not taking any more treatment, we're not doing anything, there's nothing we can do but cast ourselves upon God. And nine months later, Lucy was born. And then they've had two more since then. And that was only one of many. And Gary and Sheila, he's in, I think, Taiwan at the moment, but they are still seeing extraordinary miracles. Now, I know we were in a church in Ireland and I told this story and a lady came up and said you know I've had 22 miscarriages wow. but she's still you, you know And I, we, we were in England we have two daughters in England one of them just had a miscarriage Elaine's had a miscarriage I'm not please I'm not this word of faith name and claim and get on this spout, spout let the glory come out and you know nothing is ever going to go wrong in your life no that's not true we're fighting in a battle there's a spirit of murder and abortion abroad in our culture. We're fighting a battle. But, but God can still do the impossible. Come on. Yes. And He does regularly. I'm encouraging you today. And so this is the power of the kingdom. This is the power of the kingdom. We minister to a group of people in, elsewhere in the state of Indiana over a period of several years. And all infertile. And I got a picture when I was in England, or before I went to England, I can't remember, of a dedication service they had in northwestern Indiana with, I think, a dozen couples and babies. They're all there. You know, God is so faithful. And God can do the impossible. There are many, many mysteries to healing. There are mysteries to the power of the kingdom. I want to tap into the power of the kingdom. I've never been in a healing meeting like Peter's where everybody was healed. I was in two of Catherine Kuhlman's meetings many, many years ago, if anyone knows who she was. And I saw the power of God operating. I have seen the presence of God. I've seen the power of God. But I've never been in a meeting where everybody was healed. And I've been in lots of meetings where nobody has been. But you know what? We're just like that widow in Luke 18. We press in and we don't give up. We're stubborn. We have to press on and be stubborn because every time we believe God for any kind of miracle of healing, and I'm talking about how to get back to where this apostolic church was, which was the key to revival for them, every time we believe God for a miracle of healing, we are coming up against 300 years of unbelief, 300 years of being told in our culture that miracles don't happen. 300 years of being laughed at. 300 years of being called ignorant hillbillies and all sorts of other things like that. We are coming up against that in our culture. But we have to fight back and cast ourselves upon God. The shocking truth is that the culture we live in, underneath its appearance of sophistication and wealth, is a culture of darkness. It's a culture of broken families, of addictions, of abortion, of fatherlessness, of self-centeredness, of hopelessness. It looks a little bit like the picture of Babylon that's portrayed in Revelation chapter 17. That's what 300 years of denying the power of God has brought us in this culture. And what our culture needs, what this nation needs, what this community needs, is the culture of the kingdom of God. The kingdom kingdom of God isn't all about miracles. First of all, it's about sacrificial love. But make no mistake, it's a kingdom that advances in power. And when we lose the power, we're in trouble. Churches are designed to be expressions of the kingdom of God, not religious institutions which lull people into a ceremonial haze of dead rituals and then wonder why nobody wants to come anymore. The culture of the apostolic church, which I am finishing because I'm in the minus. (laughs) The culture of the apostolic church laid out in those verses in Acts chapter 5 that I read isn't necessarily one that we're going to be able to duplicate anytime soon. And in one sense, it almost represents an ideal. But that doesn't mean it's irrelevant. Because in every area of life, we live in a tension between the real and the ideal. Jesus is the ideal. He's over here. Dave, he's way back here, mired in the real. He can barely get up out of bed in the morning without three or four coffees. And even then, he's a little bit, you know. But Jesus is pulling Dave in his direction. He's pulling me out of the reel in which I live, and maybe some of you live, toward himself. Yes. Now, I'm not there yet, but I'm moving in the right direction. number of years ago, I went through a terrible period of despair because we had a great problems in our church. And I, I, I just felt so discouraged. I felt like giving up. And one morning, I was putting the garbage out, and I was walking down the driveway, and I thought, I don't even know if I can get to the end of the driveway. And I just felt God speak to me. That's my ace that I've always had. I've heard the voice of God. And I thought God speak to me and said, just keep putting one foot ahead of another. <laughs> Not very dynamic, is it? But it's just just keep putting one foot ahead of another. And somehow I got there. So I'm encouraging you saints. Put one foot ahead of another. You can all do that. Just keep moving. Even if things are tough in your life right now. Just keep moving. Because Jesus is pulling you toward himself. Don't look at the person beside you. The person behind. The person ahead. Look at Jesus. Keep your eyes on him. The author and finisher of your faith. He'll pull you toward himself. No matter what the reality Of what you live in is. John Wimber. That man I alluded to. Founded the vineyard movement of churches. He believed. He had a revelation of divine healing. And he started praying for people in his church. The Anaheim Vineyard. The first vineyard church. And nobody got healed. And nobody got healed. And nobody got healed. And everybody started to leave. Even his wife nearly left the church. But he kept on. And one day somebody got healed. He was so surprised, he could hardly believe it. He was telling her, well, you know, God doesn't always heal. When she said, but I've been healed. (laughs) And and then he traveled around the world, equipping thousands of people in healing ministry. And uh, he he used to say, when people came up to him and said, well, you know, I, I pray for somebody and they haven't been healed. He would say, well, you go back and pray for a thousand people. And then you come back and complain. And they'd say, well, that's a bit extreme. And he said, no, I pray for a thousand people before the first one was healed. You do the same. Just be like that persistent widow. Let the ideal draw you out of the real. The church, this church, Antioch church, Indianapolis was founded in a culture of the kingdom. In fact, the movement was founded as we witnessed last night was so dynamic. It's so dynamic that I thought, why do I get stuck having to preach after that guy? But anyway, and I thought, well, at least he's not going to be here tonight. (laughs) But this movement was founded in a culture of the kingdom. You know what I read? Someone gave us a copy of, uh, I think Sam and Sarah gave us a copy of a book that Jimmy had written. And someone had written a testimonial on the back saying to visit the church in Waco is like visiting the New Testament church. The apostolic church. That's what I'm talking about, folks. Tonight, this church, this movement was founded in a culture of the kingdom. In a culture of the miraculous. And thank God you're still living in that culture. You're a people who refuse to settle for anything less. You may lose some battles, but you will press on. You will fight the enemy on every front. You will be like the widow in Luke 18 who battered and beat that judge down until she got what she wanted. You may be bruised yourself and bloodied and beaten up in the battles of life, but you won't give up until you've seen his kingdom come. Let that spirit, brothers and sisters, be in you tonight as you take hold of his promise new. Ask God if you need to for a fresh encounter with the Holy Spirit tonight because whatever you've seen or experienced of God in the past is only a foretaste of what is yet to come. Yeah. Hallelujah.